Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished from the Classical Ideas podcast. This is a podcast run by Greg Soden, and it's absolutely terrific. If you like the NBN, I'm sure that you'll like Classical Ideas. You can find it at classicalideaspodcast.lipson.com or on iTunes. I hope you enjoy the following interview. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. A prolific author and speaker, Alan Watts was one of the first to interpret Eastern wisdom for a Western audience. Born outside London in 1915, he discovered the nearby Buddhist lodge at a young age. After moving to the United States in 1938, Alan became an Episcopal priest for a time and then relocated to Millbrook, New York, where he wrote his pivotal book, The Wisdom of Insecurity a message for an age of anxiety. In 1951, he moved to San Francisco, where he began teaching Buddhist studies, and in 1956 began his popular radio show, Way Beyond the West. By the early 60s, Allen's radio talks aired nationally, and the counterculture movement adopted him as a spiritual spokesperson. He wrote and traveled regularly until his passing in 1973, you can find information on his work at www.allenwatts.org. My guest today is Alan's eldest daughter, Joan Watts. She is the co-editor, along with her sister Anne, of the new volume, The Collected Letters of Alan Watts, out now from New World Library. Today we are discussing the life of Alan Watts, part one in my series with Joan and Anne Watts. Without further delay, I bring you Joan Watts. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I am here today with Joan Watts, who is one of the editors of the new volume, The Collected Letters of Alan Watts. So, Joan, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Well, thank you for having me. So, I want to start off by just kind of talking about the fact that we just passed the 44th anniversary of the passing of Alan Watts, your father. And I'm a high school teacher, so I'm always curious what people want to convey about the topics that they're interested in. So if you were to stand in front of a room of American teenagers, what do you think would be the most important thing for them to know about Alan Watts and his work? Well, it's interesting you should ask that question because I had the opportunity to actually do that. Uh, back at the end of October, I was um, asked to be um, a distinguished speaker at the um, Happy, or it's now the Basant Hill School of Happy Valley in Ojai, California, that I attended. And um, so I was speaking in front of a, a group of teenagers. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, um, right now, um, a lot of 
what Alan uh, wrote, especially in his letters, is so relevant to the things that are happening today. And um, I think that um, I'm seeing more young people turn, especially 20s and 30s, uh, to his work. But I'm also surprised with uh, the teenagers uh, that are. I had one teen came up to me at the end of um, uh, my discussion there, and he was clutching a book that he had read of Alan's, Cloud Hidden, Whereabouts Unknown, when he was 11 years old, and he was now 17 and had read all of Alan's books. Great surprise. <laughs> Indeed. So I dutifully autographed his book for him, and, um, uh, you know, he was uh, just a very normal-looking kid, you know, um, so just concerned about the future and the trend of things in the world. So you've got this new collection out, and it's quite a tome, and it I read the whole thing, and I absolutely loved it, and I'm curious if you can set the stage for this massive letters collection. So what does the archive of Alan Watts look like? Where is it? Where is it stored? Is it messy, organized? So can you describe um, what we would be looking at if we saw the scope of the project that you and Anne were facing down? Well, um, it sits in my office, uh, or at least the, the uh, correspondence and so on, a portion of it does. All his books went to the California Institute of Integral Studies. Um, so his, his library collection went there, but his uh, personal letters and uh, manuscripts and so on uh, I, my sister and I uh, inherited when his uh, widow died in 1992. Um, and quite frankly, it was a mess. Uh, they had been stored in a storage area in, Cali- in Mill Valley, California, actually, where um, there had been a flood, and so a lot of papers were damaged. Um, and I... Um, hired a, a nice young woman that had worked for me previously uh, to help us go through and sort out uh, what was still readable and what uh, was uh, important and so on and um, create a, uh, a useful file. Um, it's basically two legal drawers, uh, a, a file cabinet with two full-size legal drawers in it. And... Um, Alan made copious copies of his letters. I mean, he would, he would, uh, I think, probably for remembering what he said to the person more than anything else. Um, and so we had many carbon copies to go through. And, um, and he also wrote to his parents, uh, and that was a great find. Um, I didn't realize that that was in the file. Uh, until we started really going through it. It was um, amazing because he wrote to his parents almost every month during the course of his life. His father died a year after he did, so um, you can imagine the scope of letters that were there. And um, those uh, were all original copies because his parents saved every single one of his letters from the time he went to school as a boy age 13, I think, are the earliest letters we found. And uh, all of that, um, 
when we started going through them, there were probably well over 600 and some letters that we went through and um, basically chose ones that we thought would be of most interest to people. Do you know the... Oh, sorry. Oh, and then then we had to, of course, um, scan and uh, put them into Word format and do that whole thing, uh, copy edit everything. <laughs> so it was quite a process. Do you know how many letters you did include in the book out of the 600 plus that you had to work with? I think there were, there's about 400 letters in the book. Yeah, there were, it was really quite a remarkable project. In the in the drawers, in the files, were there the original responses and letters from Alan's parents to him as well? Uh some, yes. And um, certainly some of the letters to the, the individuals that um, he wrote to in there, there were also responses. I would, and, imagine, uh, I would imagine that's a pretty because, cherished uh, cherished thing for you. Right, yeah. And, and I guess uh, with the publisher, we, we decided to only do the letters that he wrote because it would be so difficult at this point in time to get permission to publish the letters that people wrote to him. Fantastic. So um, the book goes through many different eras of his life, um, basically from the beginning until the very end. And one of the sections that I really latched onto were his years as a priest, because I've never really thought of Alan as like a Christian scholar. I've always been exposed to him through his Eastern philosophy and his work with the Tao and Zen mostly. So um, even though he was in the church for a long time. So his Christian roots seemed just as strong as his Buddhist roots. So Alan's young years seem to describe an experience of um, deep Christianity, but he also seems to find Christian curriculum sort of boring, but then he branched into Zen when he was very young. And so as a modern Westerner, I fit that, that 30s demographic that you talked about who finds Alan's work very compelling and also his Eastern work very compelling. So is it surprising to you that Alan went from Christianity to Buddhism and then back to Christianity before finally settling in Buddhism? Uh, It was surprising. Um, I, you know, of course, during that period of time, I I was a, a young girl, so... Um, my grasp of it in that era was not particularly um, involved there, but um, in in reading over his letters, especially uh, his letters regarding uh, Christian doctrine, um, I, I constantly felt like he was weighing uh, the Christian thought with uh, Eastern thought uh, and um, not quite totally buying into the Christian doctrine. And um, it didn't surprise me, uh, you know, that he would eventually leave the church. Um, but it was it was interesting how he got into it so heavily. Um, he seemed to be very much into the ritual uh, and... Um, <laughs> I want to say pomp and circumstance almost <laughs> because it was it was very much like that. I remember uh, attending uh, mass when he was um, presiding over the the altar, and um, he really he took it very very seriously. And um, 
it was always very elegantly done. Uh, his his mass, his his um, sermons, um, uh, you know, and, and high high. Um, I want to say the, the like Christmas and Easter and holiday, high holidays or that's not quite the right word for it. Um, he would you know really go all out, uh, and people seemed to really enjoy that. Uh, the parishioners that uh, gathered around uh, were just enthralled with it, and he got to take part in other ecumenical uh, services with places like the. Greek Orthodox Church in Chicago or the Russian Orthodox and several other interesting places that uh, were very interested in his uh, views of uh, the uh, rights of uh, the religious orders and so on. Yeah, so he seems... You know, so so basically, what you're saying is he was he took it very seriously. He took his role as a priest very seriously, but he also seems to have this undercurrent of questioning and a conflicted mindset of what it's what the teachings are is that right do i have that right yes i think that's about it um i think possibly partially because um the eastern philosophy was so much more relaxed uh if that would be a term for it compared to uh catholicism uh or other christian doctrine where uh, everything was very rigid um, rules. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you know, I, th- I think that that was part of it. Do you think, like, what was he, what was his um his mood like whenever he was a priest? Well, like, was he kind of like a, because, you know, I, I've seen his lectures on YouTube and things like that, but mm-hmm. I don't really, but you knew him personally, so whenever he was taking his priestly duties really, really seriously, like, how was he around the house? Was he, like, taking things very seriously and that in his mood, or was he kind of, you know, was he different in his role as a priest and as, like, a dad? Oh, I would say he was uh, different. He, You know, he was, uh, um, you know, and as, a, as a priest, it was serious business. As a dad, it was fun. I mean, you know, he was always kind of playful and, uh, you know, involved with our activities and so on. Um, and he went on that way for our first, the first 10 years of my life anyway, the first six years of my sister's life. Um, and then, you know, once, once he left the church and he started, uh, being much more sought after lectures, uh, traveling, all of that. Um, of course we were both sent off to private school, so we didn't see him very much except on vacations and so you know that was kind of that was the tipping point where you know we we had the full access to him and then we didn't have access to him so that was but he he was always um he he always enjoyed life pretty much i think um and was kind of a bon vivant in many ways beautiful so i watched in the book as he justifies um, becoming a priest, and he talks about how everything that he can say can be said through Christian theology. 
And then mm-hmm. in the book, he also seems very mentally conflicted after he gets into the priesthood. So he seems conflicted with his choice almost immediately in the letters, and he's critiquing the standards of the graduate school. He says the congregations are bored. And then he also talks a lot about how he misses New York, the publishing world, his Wisdom of the <laughs> East series. So these are like, I've, I've felt these things before, like in my own personal life, like whenever I'm doubting the choices that I've made. So I was like, oh <laughs> my goodness, this is like the exact same things that I've faced in my own yeah. life. So these cl- hints clue me into a man having like a crisis of confidence. And he seems to be expressing some regret over these choices to enter the church and these constant referring back to his previous life. So as you were reading these letters, um, years and years later, what did you learn watching Alan wrestle on the page with his with his uh, his decisions to become a priest? Well, I just I just felt that somehow he had talked himself into something that he didn't really uh, believe in, and um, you know, at one point in the book, uh, it was fine because I I, I consider myself uh, basically uh, an agnostic or non-believer in, in, uh, God. Um, and, uh, I just got to a point where I said enough already, you know, <laughs> stop trying to convince yourself that this is what you believe. And, um, you know, I, I just felt that that was very prevalent somehow in his thinking was, um, and I'm, I'm not sure he ever actually, uh, got away from thinking that there was a Supreme being, um, I, I, you know, because he sort of continued to refer to that off and on uh, as he continued throughout his life, and especially being still in contact with some of the, the people, more interesting people involved in Christian doctrine and in the church. And then when he left, like he seemed to leave like a flurry of criticism. Like one of my favorite quotes in the book is when he says, I am now fully persuaded that the church's claim to be the best of all ways to God is not only a mistake, but also a symptom of anxiety. So do you think he felt foolish for taking this path in the first place? Or like, did he have good things to say about the church or Christianity in like his later years in your own personal conversations with him? Well, um, you know, there's a letter in there that he wrote to me when I was marrying a Catholic. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, it was kind of interesting because, um, you know, he was warning me of the pitfalls and, um, and of course the pitfalls bore out. And, um, I, I think, uh, um, he's still for himself, you know, he, I think he thought for some people, the, the church was fine, but for himself, it was not. And, uh, because he wanted to lead. Uh, a less restricted life. Uh, his lifestyle was definitely what uh, plummeted him out of the, the church. Um, and um, I think that that, that was uh, his feeling was basically that I can't be free to be the person I want to be and uh, be committed to this type of philosophy. And one of those problems would be his his differing views on like marriage structure, right? Right, definitely. Do you think Alan's predictions on marriage and the unbending views of the church being a problem for the church's future? Do you think those problems have manifested 
in today's society? Oh, definitely. I think so. So how was he kind of a prophet whenever he was like sort of calling for like that this would happen? Because <laughs> it's pretty, it's kind of, uh, yeah. he foretold the future in several ways in the he letters. Did. Yeah. And, and not just in regards to marriage, but in a lot of other things. I mean, uh, you look at the, the drug years and so on and how he was promoting the legalization of marijuana. And here we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I, I think that uh, for one thing, he was very much against what he called sumptuary laws and um, that, that uh, there were certain things that you should be able to do in your life that didn't affect other people. Um, that if, if it was uh, for your benefit and you, you felt that that was your uh, drive, then you, you should be allowed to do that. Um, so, you know, that was kind of his general philosophy. So if you think about, so Alan left the church uh, pretty early in his life. Um, he still had many years of life after he left the church. So what do you think Alan offered the Christian world that nobody else could give? Uh, well, um, well, probably a perspective, a better perspective of what it really means. And, um, you know, also, the, I think he, he felt that um, the way the, the um, church was going... Uh, all the the mystery was being uh, taken out of it, that, um, you know, changing from Latin to English or, um, you know, facing facing the congregation instead of with your back to them, all of those things that were sort of implied from ages before uh, kind of disappeared. And so it was becoming just kind of very ordinary and not mysterious. Um, and I think, you know, the mystery of it was sort of um, the magic to it uh, was what he felt. And that that was kind of lost. And I don't know, you know, I think that not being a member of the church uh, myself, it's hard, hard for me to say whether um, the things that happened that changed the church so dramatically in the uh, 60s, for instance, um, would still be um, be doing, would still be happening today is basically what I want to say. So I was just amazed that so many things that he thought when he was leaving seemed to have continued to be a problem um, in the in the church to this day. It was just so many little points of prescience. Um, so let's talk about something a little more joyful for a second. There were a lot of letters where he was describing you and talking about you in your early years, you as a baby, you as a newborn, as a toddler growing up. And I even see that your personal handwriting appeared in a letter to your grandparents. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite, um, thing that you discovered about yourself as in your earliest years from Alan's letters? Well, I think my my most uh, uh, amused feelings was the letter he wrote about my birth, which I just thought was hysterical. Yeah, you were squawking, uh, right? Well, yeah, and he he couldn't refer to me as uh, 
a girl. You referred to me as it <laughs> throughout the letter. <laughs> Uh, I, I, you know, you could tell, I mean, he was only 23 when I was born. So, you know, uh, not having had any siblings, he had no experience that I know of with, uh, young children. And, um, so it was quite, quite a, an episode for him to suddenly have this little thing that squawked and drooled and made bubbles and uh, so on. Um, and I, you know, being the first child, maybe it's an advantage, I don't know, but he certainly did spend a lot of time talking about my progress, what I did, how I grew up, um, what I did when I got older, and so on, and um, not not nearly as much mention was made of uh, his other children. Uh, I think my sister found that particularly disappointing in the process of doing the book. It was kind of hard for her. Mm-hmm. And I felt almost embarrassed <laughs> to an extent of uh, his compliments of me and so on. Um, and uh, um, there's very little mention of his five children that he had in his second marriage. Occasionally he would say something about them, but not a whole lot. And... Uh, um, I, you know, you know, it was just interesting to see that. Uh, but as I say, I think it's kind of more that that perspective of the first child, and how amazing it is. You know, once you start having more children, then it's kind of rote. I would imagine that the experience for the book was much different for you than for Anne. I'm looking forward to talking to her as well about the differences. Yeah, very different, right? So, do you uh, do you have the letter that he included your handwriting in? Um, I'm not sure which letter it is, but if it was a letter to his parents, yes. Excellent. Yeah, there was one of there in there where it says where there was just some symbols, and then he said that is Joan's contribution to the letter. So I can, oh, I can uh-huh. only assume that it would have been your handwriting, and it's actually in the original oh, letter. It, it actually, I, re- I recall what you're saying now. I actually he he had typed the letter to his parents. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so it was typewritten. My my message was written on the typewriter. Gotcha. I'd imagine that most of your early like memories of Alan would be of him doing some kind of writing, wouldn't it? Like putting together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he was he was pretty much at a typewriter most of the time, and that's why one of the things I loved about the cover that was designed for the book was the the typewriter in it, uh, because that was just. That was it. <laughs> is that his actual typewriter you know, on the cover of the book? Oh, I, I don't think so. No, definitely not. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, definitely so, sort of of the era because, um, you know, it, he was writing in the days prior to uh, uh, computers and um, uh, even typewriters that had some memory in them and so on. He never had anything like that. So last weekend... I went to my first Zen retreat um, mm-hmm. in in Kansas, and it was really kind of an amazing experience. So I'm a religious studies teacher, which is why I, I have this show, um, because I mm-hmm. like to get together with and talk to people about religion things. And mm-hmm. so I'm super curious if you can ta- tell us a little bit about your Rinzai priest Zen grandmother, and <laughs> who was as I understand, the first foreigner to be a Rinzai priest, right? Right. 
So can you I think she might have been even the first foreigner to be ordained as Zen Buddhist priest. I mean, that's really um, amazing. I mean, that has Yeah. You know, can you tell me a little bit about her and um her life at Daitokuji because I know that yeah. you lived there for a while too. Right. Um well, she was kind of an unusual young woman. She um majored in Sanskrit in college at the University of uh, Chicago. Um, and was very interested in Eastern religions. Um, uh, she was married, you know, uh, in those days, there was often, especially in the sort of the more upper-class echelons, marriages were arranged. And she, because she was kind of an oddball, uh, they uh, married her to my grandfather, who was 20 years her senior, um, a very highly respected and highly paid uh, Chicago criminal lawyer um, who had had uh, polio as a child, and so he was crippled. Um, But they traveled. Uh, She uh, ended up uh, visiting China and Japan, and in the early 30s, uh, she met a Suzuki in Japan and um, wanted to... uh, find out about how she would go about learning about Zen Buddhism. And he introduced her to uh, Nanjin Kenroshi of uh, um, Nanzenji Temple in Kyoto. And she eventually was able to convince uh, uh, the temple there to take her on as a disciple. She spent three years there and... um, uh, was eventually allowed to to sit meditation with the monks and um, continued her studies there. When she left, eventually she left there and came back to the United States. Her My mother, her daughter, was a teenager and uh, she wanted to take her to England to study piano with this uh, famous pianist there. And that's when she met my father, they uh, went to the Buddhist Society of London and and met my father there, and that's how that happened. So, <laughs> but um, she eventually, after uh, well, she came back to New York, um, and then my father and my mother, after they were married, they right at the uh, outbreak of World War II, came to the United States, and at that point. Um, my grandmother had met uh, on Sasaki, who was a Zen Buddhist priest that, of the Rinzai sect that was living in New York and had a small group called um, the New York Buddhist Society, I think was the original name, which eventually became the first Zen Institute in America. And um, they formed a bond. She, you know, was very interested in his work, and um, they... Uh, he was uh, translating medieval uh, colloquial Chinese Zen texts, and she became involved in that, and um, they worked on that pretty extensively until he was interred because of the war and uh, as an enemy alien. Mm-hmm. And uh, after he was released from prison. Uh, they were married and he'd lived only for about 10 months after that. The prison basically broke his health. Um, 
so after the occupation in Japan, she went back over there and she uh, found some scholars and uh, continued to pursue their work that they had begun. And she published a few, I think maybe three books, uh, The Zen Koan, Zen Dust, and there's one other, and I can't think of the title of it at the moment. Um, but there's a book coming out in January. Uh, well, that's this month. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from Wisdom uh, Press, and um, it's called Zen Odyssey, which is a story of uh, my grandmother and Sogeon Sasaki. And um, it's pretty interesting. A friend of mine has actually done it. She did a lot of research. I guess she's been working on it for about 10 years or more. And uh, it's finally out. So, And then the, one of her other books, um, The, the um, Zen Dust, was reissued in uh, the modern Chinese, Pinyang. Um, and... Uh, that was done by an Australian publisher, uh, and it's uh, it's a pretty hefty tome as well. <laughs> so anyway, that's. Are your grandmother's books out under her name, Ruth Sasaki? Yes, they are. Excellent. Yeah. So, what did you like about? Can what you lived at um, at her temple for a while, didn't you? Right. Mm-hmm. What is your best memory about that? Ah, well, I I think my experience of living in Japan was amazing. I mean, I, I lived there for two years, and uh, I absolutely loved it. Um, and I was a young adult at the time. I ended up uh, getting married over there to a naval officer. Um, but uh, it was quite... Um, quite different, of course, from living in the United States. I was living in a, a Japanese-style house. I, I had to learn to speak Japanese. Um, I studied painting because that was what I seemed to be gifted in and, um, uh, you know, traveled around, uh, visited many temples and so on, and just loved the culture. It was To me, it was just lovely. And uh, I think one of the things I... I mentioned in the book was that, uh, you know, my father didn't get to Japan until after I did. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, he, in his uh, autobiography, mentions the the sound of rain. And that was one of the things that I absolutely loved was the sound of rain and the mist, you know, walking through temple grounds. I would just go out and walk in the rain. It was so beautiful. Beautiful. So the book describes a lot of the artifacts that Alan had. Like he's got like temple gongs and amazing kimonos, and the pictures in the book are spectacular. He's got so many neat little artifacts mentioned throughout the book and in the letters. Do you have any of these artifacts? Like, what are your favorite things? Uh, do you have any like physical things of his that you really cherish? Um, uh, I I have a few things. Uh. I think um, I'm just trying to think what I... I I had a a wonderful pair of wooden geta that my father used to wear when he'd step out the door of his place uh, on the mountain in uh, Mill Valley, and I actually gave those to my 
uh, one of my grandsons for a graduation present, and he was absolutely tickled. I, mm. <laughs> I, it was an odd gift to give, and I didn't know how he would respond, you know, but he, he just absolutely loved it. Um, I have uh, a kimono that he wore often and oh, a sash, and um, I have some of the pictures that he painted. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a talented artist as well. And um, uh, what else do I have? I, you know, I have some small things, uh, things that that um, he had growing up. Even uh, I have some pretty Chinese plates that his uh, mother had been given from uh, parents of students. Uh, she taught missionary students, missionary families, uh, children, and uh, they often brought gifts back from the, from Asia to her. And uh, so I have a few things like that. Um, my uh, my brother has a Buddha that was on the little altar in his um, library. Uh, I have some silk. Uh, Chinese silks and things like that. But, uh, it's, it's hard for me now to remember which was my grandmother's and which was right. my father's sometimes. So <laughs> I always uh, I'm getting so old I can't remember. <laughs> in in the book, I really like that. There's like this playful rivalry almost between um, your grandmother and Alan. Oh, very much so. Yeah, that seemed really... But they kept in touch. So even after your parents yeah. had separated, he kept in touch with the Zen priest, um, Ruth Sasaki. I found that to be yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Well, um, he. I think he had a lot of respect for her. And um, she did for him in many respects. I mean, she... Uh, I remember, um, I think it was... Uh, the Way of Zen, when that came out, I was living in Japan. In fact, I had uh, provided him with uh, photographs of uh, the, the rock garden at Ryoanji, um, uh for the book. And um, I know she, you know, made notations in the uh, margins about <laughs> things that he said. It was very amusing. Um, but and I, I think I gave that book to him uh, after uh, she passed away. Um, it was something that came to me through my mother. Um, but um, they, the, unfortunately, the letters, uh, he must have handwritten the letters to her because what he wrote to her wasn't in the file. Her letters to him were. And oh. so... I, I was kind of disappointed that we didn't see the the originals that he wrote, but I suspect that he hand wrote them instead of typed them. So, can we talk about the '60s for a few minutes? Sure. So that's kind of like Alan's, like uh, his his era, like what he's best known for. So right. I I'm 34. Um, I was born in 1983, and I wasn't alive in the '60s. So I am curious about that time. Why do you think Alan's voice resonated so much in the 1960s? Well, I, I think he, he became a member of the counterculture himself. And, um, you know, with his 
interest in, in psychedelics and um, so on. I think um, that was part of it. And I think on the other hand, too, that um, people in the 60s were looking to break out of their religious box and they were looking at other uh, other ways of religion. I, I think that was, of course, during the time when um, the you know, some of the Maharishi or whatever uh, people were coming to the, con- the country and people were getting interested in meditation and um, uh, different types of uh, uh, Eastern religions. And when Alan was getting really famous in the 60s, you were living in Indiana, right? Um, well, I lived briefly in Indiana, and then I uh, lived in Ohio, in Baton, Ohio area. Did you see Alan's books in bookstores while you were living in the Midwest, or had the Midwest not gotten there yet? Oh, no, they were definitely there. And um, I generally kept quiet about <laughs> that he was my father, uh, not for any particular reason other than I was kind of shy, you know, and if somebody found out I was the daughter of Alan Watts, uh, the reaction was always kind of interesting, like anything from, as I say in the foreword of the book, you know, um, you seem too ordinary to be the the daughter of Alan Watts or may I kiss your feet, you know, I mean, the reaction was always very interesting and um, I would always... Uh, plan a lecture for him, you know, and uh, um, they were always well attended, and <laughs> it, was, it was pretty interesting, <laughs> even in the Midwest. So, like, uh, one of the things that I'm I'm interested in in the book is, so I, I'm reading another one of his books right now, and it's one of his Introduction to Meditation, and your brother Mark wrote the foreword for it. Mm-hmm. And it's a small book. It's just a collection of letters or uh, lectures in his later years. So in the letters collection that you edited, Alan does not really seem to talk about his own Zen practice. So mm-hmm. did he have a strict Zazen practice that he that he would do every day? No. Okay. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about his his practice because... It's just something that I'm really curious about. It seems to be like a gap in his letters. Well, I think that he he felt very strongly that you didn't have to sit uh, zazen for many hours in order to reach enlightenment. Um, that uh, that you could. I I think it's more kind of like mindfulness that people talk about now. Um, that you, you know, he could sit for brief periods and, um, you know, or walk. He liked to uh, liken his meditation to walking. And um, those were more the things that he was involved with um, rather than uh, sitting cross-legged on the floor for many hours uh, in a a semi-darkened room a bunch of other people doing the same thing. So, if he could do it all, like if he could do his, uh, you know, how he was a priest, do you think if he could do it all over again that he would become a Zen monk of some kind? I don't think so. Maybe that he life enjoys, wasn't for him. He, he enjoys uh, the other trappings of life too much 
Gotcha. Culinary, uh, you know, parties, uh, gatherings, discussions. Um, you know, as I said at the beginning of our conversation here, he was somewhat of a bon vivant. You know, he he just enjoyed participating in uh, lively discussions and uh, artistic things and and um, music things and so on culinary, whatever. An appreciator of all of the arts, it seems. Yeah. Um, so there's been, as you mentioned a moment ago, mindfulness has swept the world. And there is a new body of research led by some professors in neuroscience labs around the world talking about the brain benefits of meditation and how it shows signs that it could potentially slow down aging in the brain. And I'm thinking about the work of Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson that I sent to you in that mm-hmm. email. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think Alan would say about the like the neuroscience research in meditation today? Like, do you think he'd be surprised, or do you think he'd be like, "I told you so"? Oh, I probably I told you so. I don't think he'd be terribly surprised, but I think also that he would be very interested. Um, he was certainly very involved in the neuroscience aspects of uh, psychedelic drugs and mm-hmm. um, was uh, in touch with various brain specialists um, uh, at the time um, and psychologists and psychiatrists and so on. I know he spoke at different symposiums and so on with groups of people of that ilk and um, uh, would be totally fascinated with um, whatever research might be going on with uh, that aspect in his uh in his later years his lifestyle seemed to get away from him like with drinking and smoking and so that the book takes you into a facet of his life that a lot of readers maybe don't know much about and um one really shocking encounter with you he said that he would commit suicide any way that he wanted. And that must have been like a hugely shocking and traumatic experience for you. Um, how did you handle things like this? Was this ever dealt with again? Like, what are your what are your thoughts on these kinds of moments today? Um, well, it's, it's, it's a sad situation. Uh, you know, um, so many people today still don't fully understand uh, the disease of addiction and, um, and, and the difficulty of getting out of it. Um, I've seen that in my own life, not personally, but some people around me who, uh, including my father, of course, but, you know, that was kind of my first window into the problem. But um, the inability to realize that um, it's not just you that, your addiction is affecting, but it's also the people around you. And um, I think that, you know, that was, that was very, I don't think he fully understood that when we saw him in that state, it was heartbreaking. And, um, but he was so entrapped in it that he could not, um, he could not see that. I think is basically what happens. You know, he's 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 frustrated by it. He can't 
and he can't admit that, but, you know, frustrated that he can't stop. He can't just say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I mean, he tried. He, he did stop smoking for a brief period, and he stopped drinking a couple of times, both times ending up in the hospital with BTs. And mm-hmm. um, uh, that was scary, too. So, you know, uh, I think for anybody that has an, an addiction like that, it's it's just a terrible thing, and it's terrible to get out of it. Yeah. And, and and if you're not an an addictive person, it's like I I'm not an addictive person, and so it it was very hard for me to understand, uh, you know why you can't just say I'm not going to do this anymore and stop. Right. And then his life um, ended prematurely at the age of fifty eight, and right. his funeral was uh, famously held at the Green Gulch Farm, and which mm-hmm. was presided over by Richard Baker Roshi, the Dharma heir right. of Shinryu Suzuki, the founder of the San Francisco mm-hmm. Zen Center. Can you kind of describe your memories of that day, the funeral? Um, you know, it's, I, I don't remember a lot about the day at this point. Um, it was, uh, uh, we, had, we had a small family uh, funeral first, and then what I remember most is the 100-day celebration because that was, when um, he his ashes were interred on the hillside above Green Gulch, and there was a a stupa erected, a, a, a nice stone that had been found and moved there to uh, mark his spot. And um, um, I just I remember uh, the processions of people, uh, um, the many guests that arrived for the ceremony. I remember. People like Gary Snyder uh, reading. I think James Broughton read also um, something they had written for him, and um, so I remember all that. Um, and uh, uh, it was, you know, a very lots of incense, a very ceremonious day. I remember Baker Roshi with his uh, whisk of horsehair, I think it is, um, presiding over the ceremony, and um, Claude Dallenberg, another uh, priest there. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what I remember. <laughs> so as we bring our conversation to a close today, um, as Alan's daughter, what are some of your favorite pieces of wisdom that you've gleaned from him and because he seems to be one of the most curious people who ever lived i mean you couldn't find a more well-read person and a more broadly studied person it seems than alan mm-hmm. watts so what are some of your favorite pieces of wisdom that you've gleaned from being his daughter um i you know it's hard to say that it was a, a piece of wisdom uh but i i think that um I certainly inherited a curiosity about things, you know, that uh, um, I'm never bored. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I've either. always got something uh, going on, something to do. Um, I'm uh, pretty open. I know uh, my friends are always astonished that I'm the age I am, uh, that they always find me sort of 
uh, their age, <laughs> which might be 50 <laughs> or 60, <laughs> and I'm on the cusp of being 80. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting. I just, I, I'm always fascinated with stuff. I mean, I, I learned, for instance, how to use a computer, how to program, how to, how to do a website, how, you know, I've stayed technical, technical, huh, I can't even say the word, technolo- technologically active. Um, I, you know, I still uh, paint, I, I write, you know, I am uh, involved in all kinds of things. And I, I think, you know, my father was like that too. I mean, he, he would, it's like he got a, an interest in uh, um, various things that he would just continue to, to explore and new things, quantum physics, uh, whatever was kind of a new thing he would delve into. And of course, his curiosity about drugs, sure. things like that, and you know, how, how all that works. I could uh I could see Alan being like 113 years old right now, like writing code on websites. <laughs> I'm not sure he would do that. <laughs> I I think he might have other as other things that might be more interesting on that, but um yeah that's that's a little too uh, practical and scientific maybe I don't know. <laughs> but I I do have to say you know given given his uh, scholastic ability. I mean, that was one of the things that would just blew me away in, in reading uh, his early letters in particular was that this man was a scholar. I, he was incredibly intelligent and absorbed information like Christian doctrine and Latin and Greek and all of these different things. Uh, he excelled in it. I mean, he was incredibly good at that. And uh, certainly his understanding of Eastern philosophies as well. Um, he was just a sponge of sorts for all that kind of information and um, learned it well. Well, Joan, I just want to say one more time that I absolutely loved your collected letters of Alan Watts that you edited well, together you. with your sister. It is a remarkable journey into a life and I hugely encourage everybody to buy the book and learn about this life and take away Alan's curiosity and apply it to something that you love as well. And I'm so grateful to you for spending this hour with me to talk about the life of your father, Alan Watts. Well, thank you. I've certainly enjoyed it. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.